Over 75% of adults with autism and other intellectual and developmental disabilities live at home with family. There's a growing population of aging caregivers of adults with developmental disabilities. This is in part due to increased lifespan of both the caregiver and the uh, person living with an autism spectrum condition or another intellectual or developmental disability, and also due to extensive waiting lists for residential services. It's also due to improved healthcare and resources for people living with autism spectrum disorders and other intellectual and developmental disabilities. So in honor of World Autism Day, which is Friday, April 2nd, This podcast episode will focus on older adults who are caring for adult children with autism or other intellectual or developmental disabilities. I'm Dr. Regina Kett. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist, and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to answer some of the most common questions I get about aging, questions about mental health and wellness, changes in the brain, like with dementia, relationships and sex, caregiving, and even end of life. Like I say in my therapy groups, no topic is off topic. We just have to have a healthy way of talking about it. So if you're an older adult or caring for one, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Today, I interview Lois Shingler, who is the mom of Paul, who's 45 years old and on the autism spectrum. Paul lives with Lois, and Lois is here today to talk about how she is planning for the time when she's no longer able to care for Paul and the resources that she's putting in place and the recommendations that she has for other families for planning for the time that you, if you're an older adult caring for an adult with special needs, for the time that you are no longer able to care for your loved one. This is a great episode to kind of speak to this underrepresented discussion around caring for adults or even older adults living with autism spectrum disorders or other intellectual or developmental disabilities. With more awareness around autism and more awareness around uh, disability rights, this is a really important episode. I also want to say that I recognize today's episode is focused on the caregiver of the person living with autism. To help balance this out a bit, because the caregiver's perspective is one perspective, and then there's also the perspective of the adult living with autism. And so I have three articles on the show notes that link to where you can learn more about living with autism after 65 years old. So I hope that you check out those resources as well. So let me share a little bit about Lois Shingler. Lois Shingler is an attorney who served as a hearing officer for special education due process hearings for the state of Georgia, as a special assistant to attorney general representing the Department of Family and Children's Services in several counties in Georgia, and as guardian ad litem representing children in contentious divorce and custody cases. 
Lois is co-founder of Peter and Paul's Place, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to establishing an inclusive residential community built around a community center. Lois's son, Paul, is 45 years old and is on the autism spectrum. Issues involving Paul's education, care, working life, and long-term support led to the formation of Peter and Paul's Place. So let's jump into this interview with Lois Shingler. Oh, one more thing before we jump in. So in the interview, you're going to hear some strange electronic sounds. A couple times you're going to hear an email coming in. That's not strange. But you're going to hear some strange kind of sounds. I was literally in shock. So listen till the very end to discover why you might hear some sounds throughout the interview. Okay, now let's jump into the interview with Lois Shingler. Lois Shingler, thank you so much for joining me on the Psychology of Aging podcast. You're here to talk about something so important that goes often undiscussed and unacknowledged as people age and families age. You're here to talk about a family, right. your, your family and millions of other families that often are left out of the conversation around aging. Correct. So thank you so much for being here and, and for sharing your mission with us today. Can you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. And thank you for inviting me to do this. It's such an important topic that is just beginning to get the attention that it really deserves and it needs. Um, I'm an attorney. I've, uh, reached the age where uh, I can get, I could have gotten that vaccination in the very first round, <laughs> just turned 70. And I have practiced uh, since 1974. My um, interests, I, I, I first started practicing with Georgia Legal Services and um, sort of morphed into um, uh, really an advocate for people with special needs, primarily because my son, um, who is now 45, um, is on the autism spectrum. And so your focus changes when you have a family member, as everybody knows, with any kind of a, a special uh, need, whether they're gifted or have some particular disability. So, you know, your focus sort of changes. And mine did over the years. It's funny, I went to law school primarily because both my parents were social workers. My father uh, was Paul Deutschberger, who was the associate dean of the School of Social Work in, at uh, UGA uh, when it was first um, uh, first formed. And my mother was a gerontologist. She uh, she started the uh, Council on Aging or helped start the Council on Aging in Athens and uh, the Senior Center and did the same thing in Nashville. We were there, worked with the Senior Center there. And so I grew up going to meetings with mom and uh, learned to really um, love and enjoy being with people who are older. I learned all kinds of interesting skills, uh, pottery and sewing and so forth, but mostly just learned, uh, really was able to sort of enjoy the richness of so many different kinds of people. So that's sort of my background. And, and um, folks will tell you that I'm as much a social worker as, a, as an attorney, because what I primarily do now, um, or have done for the last, oh gosh, 20 years, is guardian ad litem work in superior courts. I represent kids in divorce situations. So between that and my work as a, um, I was a hearing officer for due process 
uh, cases for special education for a while, but haven't done that in a long time. But mostly just have been an advocate for uh, my son and people with special needs. My biggest interest right now, is, I'm still doing a little uh, work as a guardian ad litem, but my biggest interest right now is uh, a nonprofit that I have started along with one of my good friends, Charlotte McKinnon, um, called Peter and Paul's Place. My son's name is Paul. Her son's name is Peter, which is how we got sort of got to the name. And it's an organization that um, it, we our eventual goal is to have a residential community, a place where people with disabilities, particularly intellectual developmental disabilities, can live with uh, with their neighbors, people who do not have. Uh, developmental disabilities, and to have an inclusive community that has uh, support there right on the grounds, a social worker, um, and maybe folks who are training to work in the field there on the grounds with them, and um, to have uh, all kinds of um, opportunities for uh, social activities, for educational activities, uh, for connection with the community, and for support. So that's our eventual goal. Our immediate goal is to try to establish a community center in Tucker, which is where we're located, that will provide space for social, educational uh, activities and will also be open to the general public for use as an event space. And we want a center most of that around the arts, um, you know, the visual arts, drama, music, things that um, people with disabilities enjoy just as much as folks who don't have them. So that's a little bit about me. I guess the important thing that, that I've left out is that my son, Paul, um, continues to live with us. And so all of the issues that we might talk about today are things that I've dealt with personally and with uh, so many people that I know have dealt with personally. Yeah. And um, he is, he works. He's uh, been fortunate enough to, to um, have the support of supported employment. Uh, Briggs and Associates, a wonderful organization in Atlanta, uh, supports him. And he has caregivers that when there is no uh, pandemic, take him to activities and will stay with him for the weekend in a condo that he and Peter own. Um, they haven't, been able to stay there for a year, but um, that hopefully will be coming up. So I have a personal connection as well as um, a sort of legal and intellectual connection with this whole area. Yeah. And one of the the under-discussed topics that I'm so delighted that you're here to talk about is your experience of uh, becoming an older adult Right. You shared with us that you are 70 yes. and your son is 45. And so you're, I, I know from our previous conversations, you're planning and thinking about what will your older adulthood look like and what will your son's aging right. process look like and, and where will you live? Where will he live? How do you negotiate and find all these resources and, um, you know, what is the state of things for uh, folks with special needs who are growing older and who have aging parents, perhaps who they live with. Right. And so <clears throat> I'm, I'm wondering if you could share a bit about your experience of aging yourself with an atypical son, a uh, son on the autism spectrum who, or has a condition on the autism spectrum who, um, you know, is 45. That's my age. Are, your son's 
uh, aging process will look very different than my aging process, <laughs> just by the hands that we were dealt in life. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So can you share a bit about that, about your own experience of becoming an older adult and seeing, you know, your son is in middle age and yeah. just all of the, the, what you're thinking about at this stage in your life? Glad to. Um, so we are, we are very fortunate. My son is, uh, he's 45, but you know, he is very self-sufficient. He cannot drive. He cannot manage a bank account. He's, you know, doesn't know how to manage money, period. Can't really plan meals, you know, can't really, uh, you know, cook. He can do things in the microwave and he can be left alone and can entertain himself. He loves sports. So we're lucky in that sense. There are a lot of people who, have um, family members who need pretty much round-the-clock care and a lot of physical um, assistance, and Paul does not need physical assistance. So we're lucky in that sense. We're also lucky because he has a sister who is close by, who has a family, and, you know, who can make decisions and help guide him when we're no longer here. So in that sense, we are very lucky. A lot of people don't have that. A lot of people don't have those resources. So as we get older, especially during this pandemic, um, he's been home a lot. So, I mean, all the time. He, uh, and so entertaining him, getting him um, sort of motivated to do things has been much more difficult now that I'm older. And, you know, you, you get past the parenting stage where you're, you know, you kind of don't want to have to make, you know, plan meals and plan activities and try to keep people motivated. So that's one thing. The older you get, the less uh, less energy you have for that kind of thing. But there's some very uh, real physical problems with uh, aging parents taking care of aging adults. Um, my eyesight's not wonderful at night when I'm driving. And so he, one of his jobs, when I hope it comes back, it has it, but he worked at a theater. Um, but he worked in the evening. And so I, we would have to drive and uh, take him to work and then pick him up. And usually taking him to work wasn't so bad, but picking him up, you know, driving at night is a problem. So transportation is a problem. Um, transportation just in normal circumstances as you're older. You, you know, you don't want to be in the car all the time. You have less patience and, you know, your reaction times aren't that good. So driving all of the time to get a family member to work or to a social activity or to a medical appointment can be exhausting. We're, we're also lucky in that I have enough technological knowledge, not a lot, but enough to be able to handle things like doctor's appointments and advocacy and, you know, taking care of uh, things that need to be done on the computer. A lot of families don't have that. Um, we, as, as I age, I find that there are a lot of things that I just don't have the energy for. For example, tomorrow, um, my son and Peter both participate in the uh, Marcus Jewish Community Center uh, SOAR programs, and they're starting tennis, which means that now every Tuesday, we need to get him to tennis <laughs> and bring him home. And so, you know, when you're a young parent and you have kids who are playing soccer or who are doing things that um, require your attendance, it's different than when you're older and you don't necessarily want to go sit for two hours and wait. For the responsibility of taking care of another person 
uh, as you are getting to the point where you're feeling like there are a lot of things you can't do for yourself anymore that don't come as easily is hugely problematic. Uh, the emotional um, stress as well as the physical stress. There are a lot of uh, folks with disabilities who need physical help and yeah. their parents can't provide it. So, you know, as you get older, there's so many things, the transportation issue, the connection issue, the advocacy issue. Uh, I know, especially in Georgia, um, we all have to be advocates. And no matter what training you have, let me tell you right now, and no matter what state you live in and no matter what country you live in, uh, you've got to be very vigilant because those issues don't go away. And if you don't fight for those things, they don't happen. And if anybody has spent any time trying to deal with social security issues or Medicaid issues or mental health issues with organizations that are state run or even private, uh, privately run trying to get funded, it's very difficult and very frustrating. And sometimes you can do it on your own and sometimes you can't. And there's so many people with disabilities who do not have family member support that can do this for them. One of the reasons we started Peter and Paul's Place many years ago was that when my son Paul and his friend Peter graduated from high school and sort of went off into the Never Never Land, um, so many of the people he went to school with uh, had parents who worked full time or only uh, one parent in the household. and you know, those those individuals ended up totally disconnected from services, from social activities. And so there needs to be something available to those folks to allow them to live in the community and to, you know, have a fall and and, and um, a supported and and uh, happy life, a life that, that they can contribute uh, to others for. So, yeah, so aging, as we age, it becomes really critical to try and figure out what's going to happen. You really need to plan. For our son, as I, you know, I said earlier, we're, we're lucky enough to have a family member who will sort of manage his care, but he needs a place to live. Um, and so one of the things that I would say to people when you're, when you're thinking about what's going to happen is to access um, whatever websites you can find in your community that talk about housing for people with disabilities. Just start doing a little uh, computer search, a Google search, to try to figure out what's available. Go to the state. Most states have uh, departments of behavioral um, uh, science or uh, some community health department that will have lists of who to go to. Look on your uh, computer for, um, for any kind of resource that tells you how to uh, get help for social security issues. Social security is huge. If you don't access what's available, then your family member is really missing out on a lot of the uh, options that are available to them. Um, so, so think about where they're going to live. There are group homes. Most of them uh, allow between only four and seven residents. Group homes have their own set of issues. You have to really research to figure out, was this a place where, you know, your family member is going to get the support they need and the connection they need and the transportation they need? And what's going to happen when you're no longer there? Who's going to manage it? Do you have a family member that's going to manage it? There are all kinds of models that you can find where people have their own residences where they have one or two roommates. That's what my son and his friend Peter 
have. They have a condo that we bought for them. Actually, they bought with, with some of their own funds, but uh, a condo that they we are trying to get them acclimated to live in with supports. Uh, it's been difficult with the pandemic, but that's kind of the plan for us to have, you know, our daughter um, sort of look over that. But if those, if you don't have family members, look for something called a microboard. A microboard is a community organization run by volunteers who know your family member and who will make decisions for them. And there's a Georgia microboard association. They've got a good website that you can access. I'm sure most states have something like it. There are programs like the ARC, LARCH, um, which I think was started, I'm not sure, I think it was in Canada. Uh, there's one house here in Atlanta. There is another that's being planned where you have people with disabilities living with uh, people who are uh, neurotypical individuals and they support each other and become kind of a family and they're very active. Atlanta's got a wonderful, wonderful program that does all kinds of amazing things. So look for situations like that. There are uh, residential communities. Georgia is far behind a lot of states, California, New York, um, Pennsylvania, three states that come to mind, uh, Illinois, that have programs that provide um, residential solutions for people with disabilities. You need to start looking at that now, and you need to start investigating it now and find out if a waiver will pay for it, if it's a Medicaid waiver. And if not, how do you fund it? And, you know, are there scholarships? Do you have other mechanisms for funding it? Um, if you don't have a special needs trust, I think that that's something that's well worth exploring. And the special needs trust is a particular trust set up to support individuals who have disabilities. And um, generally, there, there, are many there are a couple of different kinds of trusts, one that you can set up immediately and fund immediately, and one that is funded upon your death. And both have tax consequences, both have consequences with regard to what benefits you can receive under Social Security, under the waiver programs. So you need to you need to uh, really talk to somebody. That's something that's well worth spending a little time and money to investigate. But you have to have a special needs trust. Yeah. The special needs trust that is done with an attorney. How would people find one near them? The best way to start, I think, is to go on your, your state bar website. I think every uh, state has a bar website. And most of those states will tell you, will list people who accept cases in certain areas. And I would check that first. In Georgia, you can't really say you specialize in something, but it, you can list the areas that you belong to. And one of the areas to check on a state bar website, um, there are always smaller uh, committees that you can belong to. Uh, sections, bar sections. So you look for somebody who, you know, is a member of the of the trust and estate section or somebody who's a member of the disability or child welfare sections. And that's a good way to kind of guess, to start, you know, guessing. And then you call those offices and you say, do you knew, do you do these? How many do you do? What do you charge for them? You know, just get as much information as you can about the process. If parents have other, you know, if, if some of your viewers have others in their communities who have faced these issues, then they, very often they will have dealt with somebody. 
and you can ask them who who they dealt with and how you know how easy was it to deal with somebody. But you really do need an attorney. There there are tax issues um, that are important to to really um, take a look at and to consider when you're setting up trusts for people with disabilities or for anybody. There are also social security issues. If you receive any benefits, you cannot have um, money uh, saved. You can have no more, I think, than $2,000 liquidated funds or funds that you can access in your accounts at any time. So you need to be aware of some of those things. Most um, all states have adopted the ABLE account. Uh, In Georgia, it's called stable account, and that's a way that parents can put money away that their their children either earned or they've gotten from another source. They can put it in this account without any uh, effect on their Social Security. The, the drawback to a stable account or to an ABLE account is that um, on the decease of the beneficiary, the money reverts back to the state to pay back any funds. And what is a trust? A trust is an, a mechanism that's set up that will, uh, see if I can explain this easily. It, it, what it does is it holds money, property, um, some something um, physical or uh, financial in um, a, a, a way that will benefit a certain person or certain people under certain conditions or certain terms. For example, a special needs trust usually comes into play only after the decease of the of the parent or the person who has funded it. There's some trusts that only come into play at certain ages of individuals or under certain circumstances. The special needs trust will take into consideration um, potential uh, benefits and waivers that people will get as they get older, people with disabilities, and it will appoint individuals to manage that trust and to and to, to make sure that, that the money is uh, spent appropriately. Mm-hmm. So... It's something that um, I couldn't set up on my own. Most, it really takes an enormous amount of training and understanding, and it's sort of like tax law, the the laws change, and so you really need to know what you're doing. And for that, for that feeling of assurance that after you're gone, you know these things will be taken care of, you really need to have somebody uh, who knows what they're doing handle that. So that that would be my my first real you know, strong recommendation, uh, look into setting up a trust um, and look into figuring out who's going to manage it and who's going to be responsible. As you are entering your older adulthood and preparing for your older adulthood, you're also preparing for Paul's right. uh, middle age and older adulthood as well. Right. You're anticipating what will happen when you're no longer able to care for him you're sharing, there are some signs, you have less energy, you have less inclination to sit outside for a couple of hours while he plays tennis. Uh, There's driving at night, there's the transportation. So you're imagining and planning for where will Paul live? Right. How will his funds be protected? And so setting up a special needs trust, who will help him navigate these resources and living and financial needs. So identifying someone in your family or um, looking at a micro board or some other advocacy organizations in your state or near you to to begin this search before you need it. 
and before it becomes a crisis or an immediate need. So you can be very thoughtful about how you plan for these resources. And do I have that right? You do. It's a very good summary. That's exactly right. I add to that transportation. You have to set up mechanisms for transportation. Housing, finances, transportation, and who, what trusted person, and if not a known person, a trustworthy person, and how do you go about finding them? And you're sharing microboards might be a way to do that. This, This discussion is so relevant to me. Early in my training and working with older adults, I worked, I trained on a hospice unit Mm-hmm. at the Palo Alto uh, Veterans Health Administration at the Palo Alto VA. Mm-hmm. And one of the people I was working with who was at the end of his life, he was on his deathbed, literally, mm-hmm. would share with me that he had an adult son who had schizophrenia. And the adult son would uh, come in and out of homelessness, mm-hmm. depending on um, you know, men- many mental health conditions are episodic in nature. Maybe the person will maintain some medication management for a time and have stability and then maybe go off medications and become unstable. So he would, the adult child would go in and out of homelessness. And um, during the time that my patient was dying, his son with schizophrenia, who was a middle-aged person, um, was stable and living in housing that was stable. And the patient who was dying, my patient who was dying was so worried about what would happen to his son. And just, you know, how tragic the homelessness would be for his son with schizophrenia, how dangerous it would be. How, um, and then it, going into the adult son's own aging process, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and I just, um, I honestly, as a young trainee, right, I was in graduate school, I was in my early 30s. I, I mean, I was at a loss. I don't, I didn't know. Thankfully, now I've had a lot more exposure and experience. And still, I don't, it's, I don't know everything. And so talking with you and really hearing, you know, you have, you have a, a real insight one, because you're the mother of Paul, who's atypical and living with an autism spectrum disorder. And two, because you're an attorney and you help families plan for these sorts of um, things, you know, and and so you know what questions to ask and what to look for and how to plan and prepare. And even if you yourself can't set up a trust, you know that a trust needs to be set up and you can find somebody. And so your insights are so important. So you're preparing for all of the um, the basic needs, right? Housing, transportation, finances. Who will who will be the steward of all of this? Right. Uh, these resources and making sure your needs are met. And then there's the other side, which is the emotional side. Mm-hmm. And this is um, a side that is people can't fill that those emotional needs as well. It's like, what will happen to my son when I'm no, like I am no longer here because my son has been so reliant, even emotion. I'm the one he trusts. I'm the one he can tolerate being in the same room with. I'm the one who can soothe him. I'm the one who can, um, you know, I, I know the, the mechanisms that will get him persuaded to do this other thing. And it's so terrifying. I, or the person who I was working with who was dying, and I don't, I'm curious about how it is for you. I would be so scared 
who will love my person as much as I love my person. And I wonder if you would share a bit about that. Yeah. If you, if you take a look at that, multiply your feelings by millions, Yes, you know, and particularly right now, when you think about right now during the pandemic, how many people who were hospitalized, who had, you know, special needs, uh, adult children or adult special needs children who were hospitalized and didn't understand what was going on. So when you think of the mental health issues, it's just, you know, triple any possible um, uh, number that, that you can think of, and you're probably going to get close. It's, it's enormous. And I mean, I, I think your experience is not uncommon. Um, I, you know, I know of one uh, situation in which there was a family member who uh, was taking care of an adult special needs um, a man, I believe, in uh, New York. And that individual died and there were no relatives close by. So imagine what happens. This is a, a, an adult who suddenly his only relatives are here in Georgia and they've never lived with him, don't know him, don't understand what's going on. And that special need individual has never been here. And all of their uh, contacts, things they're familiar with were in New York, and yet he couldn't continue to live there. So, you know, when your listeners are, are thinking about it and thinking about some of the problems you just don't anticipate, it's extremely stressful. It's extremely um, nerve-wracking. You know, we all worry about our kids, what's going to happen, you know, even those who are, are, are typical, neurotypical. But that's why setting something up, you do the best you can. But almost everybody, I'll bet you, I, those who are listening to this can can relate to this. Every once in a while, when I pass somebody on the you know street when I'm driving and they're holding up those signs, if I'm anywhere close, you know, I I'll I have a little um, you know one dollar bills folded in my car and I hand them because I always think there, but for the grace of God, is my son. Yeah. And I will bet you a large number of those listening right now can relate to that. Yeah. To just to look at something like that and think, how can I keep that from happening? And, you know, the, the, I think that you would find it just as frustrating today as you did then, because there are not many answers. There just are not many answers. And the, the, the more you deal with these issues, I mean, I often wonder what do people do who don't have a parent who understands a little bit about advocacy, who can read regulations, who knows how to file an appeal? You know, I've just filed a number of appeals on with regard to, to some care that my son received. You know, if you don't know how to do that, you don't understand how to do that. You don't understand what do you do if you get a notice that your child has been overpaid and you and you need to refund all of this money. What do you do if you don't have somebody who can speak for you and who knows how to at least make those phone calls? It's a huge problem. And, I, and I, will I, not I exploit you. you. I mean, that's yeah. the other risk is the risk of exploitation right. with these resources. So you're overpaid. So the person managing takes a little, because aren't I caring too? And it's crazy. It's just crazy. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest problems, I think, from you know the pandemic is that because so many agencies are short-staffed, 
if you try, if you get a notice from Social Security that over the last 10 years, they've miscalculated your benefit and you owe thousands of dollars. I know somebody who just received a notice that they owe $50,000. If you don't know how to deal with that, if you don't have somebody you can call and say, what do I do? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know what what will happen to those folks. And just, just imagine getting that letter and imagine that kind of panic. So, you know, these are these are issues that are just beginning. You know, f- that the number of people, it's, it's interesting. I, I had those figures that uh, back in 1931, the uh, average life expectancy for somebody with developmental disabilities was 22. And now it's 70. And it's, you know, we've made enormous strides in how we care for people, the, you know, the information that, that, that is out there dealing with various, um, you know, neuro, neuro, neurological or physical disabilities, you know, how, how we treat them. People live longer, which is wonderful, but our services haven't kept pace. And we're just beginning to have this conversation, you know, now what do we do? And whose responsibility is it? And how do we care for everybody? And how do we care for ourselves? You know, if we don't take care of ourselves, you know, so many people will say this is one of the, the mantras of, of um, people, uh, parents with children with disabilities. If you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of your child. So true with parents with with kids who don't have any particular problems, kids who are gifted. If you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of your child. And, you know, the services just aren't always there and people aren't aware of them. So, uh, you know, I I wish I had the answers. There are not many answers. Yeah. But thankfully, there are people like you who are advocating for Peter and Paul's place. Now, tell us the plan for is the plan for Peter and Paul then. So you do these weekend, uh, when there's not the pandemic, you, they have a condo, Peter and Paul, who are friends have a condo. They stay with you during the week. Then on the weekend, they go and stay in the condo. Is the plan to help them live in the condo full time? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the eventual plan was to have them live independently with support and both of them need almost round the clock support. So the idea is to live independently with support. That's why a residential community is really what I'd like to see happen. So that's that Peter can go next door to see a friend and watch a game, or they can have the same kind of social interaction that we have in our neighborhoods. So more than just the condo, which is fairly isolated, um, they need to have something that's that is more inclusive, and uh, that's the problem with group homes. So many group homes are isolated, and there needs to be something that helps bring people together. So the plan is to to gradually move them into that space, and eventually a different space um, for most of the most of the week, if not all of it, and to have them visit here rather than visit at the condo. And that requires setting up caregivers and that requires, and if, if you do your own, if you know, under the now waiver, you are your own, um, and not comp waiver, rather the comp, comprehensive waiver, you, you are your own employer, you hire your caregivers, you hire, you know, you find your own transportation. So those are things that 
under Peter and Paul's place, what we really want to do is help train caregivers to help find options like transportation to provide. Um, we, we want to center it around the arts to get people together to do uh, for drama and music and arts to have spaces for therapists to come in and use a space, or, you know, a place that can be a gathering place and a resource center that will build to a you know that bite first and then the the residential area. Once you, you start to build, build your community, then you can start thinking about building a residential area. Start the conversation, start the planning. Yeah. The planning takes a long time. It does. Mm-hmm. Are all of your plans in place, Lois? No, they change daily. <laughs> it's like, you know, when we first started Peter and Paul's Place, the whole idea was just to do like a resource center so people could get information. And then the internet, I mean, this was 40 years ago, the internet has changed that. We don't, that's not so important anymore. Our plans change. I mean, we, we were, we had a goal with our, our two young men, they were spending long weekends at the condo um, up to twice a month, which was pretty good. And we were going to try to move that forward. And then the pandemic hit. So then suddenly we have a whole new set of issues, you know, jobs that, that, you know, Paul held or, or people that Paul knows held were eliminated. You know, they're, they're generally the, the lower paying, less, um, you know, uh, less technical jobs and they were eliminated. And so then you're now looking at, okay, so, you know, two steps forward and three back. All right, now I'm looking for a different job and a different job training, um, you know, situation. Or, or I'm looking at, you know, transportation. My son was able to take Lyft back and forth and I can't do that anymore. So now, you know, how do you provide transportation? So it changes daily. And I think you'll find many of my listeners and your listeners will relate to this is that you don't get large things done because every day something small happens. You know, you know, the, the zipper on his coat doesn't work or you get a letter from Social Security asking you to produce all of your job um, your pay stubs and job information for the last five years. You, you know, it. <laughs> you take two steps forward and it's three steps back, but you have to keep trying. So our plans change, change daily. You know, they you just don't know. I mean, Paul's developed some uh, physical uh, difficulties. You know that you have to deal with it. You know, so they change daily, and it can be very. You know, we talk about the mental health of the caregivers. I mean, it gets very overwhelming when you're dealing with your own medical situation and all of a sudden you've now got you know something to deal with 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 your your family member so it's uh you know it's difficult it's difficult but there are others out there who are trying to to find the same answers um you just have to you know just keep trying yeah and build a community around you of people experiencing similar things. So you can share resources and experiences. Um, Your resource list on your website is one of those mechanisms. And just to summarize one more time, start planning early that you plan for how finances will be managed potentially with a trust that you plan for housing. Where will your loved one live that you plan for transportation, how will they get around, that you plan for who will be the steward of these resources and the 
potentially conservator or guardian or both. um, And so does that person know your loved one? And if not, is that person trustworthy? How do you know? And so getting all of the ducks in a row and then maintaining your own mental health in the process, because it's not the same as caring for a typical child. I will say I, I, having worked with families who have older adults who have typical adult children versus atypical adult children, it is not the same thing. It's not the same level of stress. And why I think it's so important that we're having this conversation today, because there are a lot of barriers in place for families with non-typical adult children. And the resources and the recommendations that you have are essential, but, and to your point about mental health, that that weighs heavily on the shoulders of, um, um, older adult caregivers. And there's the emotional toll of who will care in the same, the same level of love and attachment and care for my non-typical loved one. Who will see them? Like, that's the other pieces I I would worry. They're only going to see the condition. They might not see my person. And um, and that would be, do you worry about that, Lois? Do you have that fear? Of course. Yeah, of course. And of course. How do you work through that yourself? I mean, it's, it's very difficult. I think that the, the thing that I found over the years that is the most helpful is that a community of friends who have children who are now adults who, you know, are in different stages of life who have lived through some of these things. And, you know, just getting together with those folks and sharing stories and sharing resources, um, it adds a, a, a level of humor. Sometimes, you know, the things we go through are really funny to us. And sometimes just knowing that there's, you know, somebody out there who, who knows things. And there's so much, there are little bits of information floating around in this universe. And you, you don't, you don't always know where to, where to find those, which ones to grab. So I, I would say if you, if you are a parent, even of a young child, develop your community resources, get, find yourself a group of parents who are, you know, living the same life you are and share your resources and share your stories, you know, share your mental health providers. If you, you know, somebody that you see that really understands, um, that will get you through a lot. Find yourself a community that that can support you and can share some of the burdens. Yeah. That's excellent advice. Now tell us, Tell us where people can learn more about Peter and Paul's Place. Ah, What's the website? It is, it's peterandpaulsplace.org. No apostrophe in the S on Paul's, peterandpaulsplace.org. Um, it is being, we, we have a wonderful uh, web designer who is in the final steps of, of um, redesigning the website, but it's, st- it's still up so you can get, yeah, all the information, the resources that are there. Some of those resources um, will be useful to people who are in different states or even different countries. So, you know, they give you an idea of kind of where to go and what to look for and what's out there. That's where to start. And I'm hoping that, you know, we're we are um, we had ju- we had just planned our big first fundraising activity when the pandemic hit. So we're. We're now starting to, starting to regroup, and we hope to be able to do some fundraising. We, you know, if, if anyone's looking for some place to donate 
uh, too, to serve this community, that's the good place to start because our next step is to acquire a community center, which once we can start to gather again, we can start to teach caregivers and have art classes and bring people together. So and develop a residential community. And they can always also, you can connect, you know, connect with me. I think my, my email is on the, on my bio and I'm always happy to talk to people wherever oh, you live. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'll link to all of these resources well, on the show notes. Shining some light on this particular problem. Um, I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, yeah, wish you all the best and hope that there's somebody out there who's a lot smarter than I am who can figure this all out and share it because uh, it, it takes a it takes a team. It takes a it takes a village. Zoom from here and I do a lot of Zoom things, but that doesn't mean I was struck by lightning when I was eleven. Literally. But yeah, I was crossing the street with my mother on the way to the Council on Aging in Nashville, Tennessee. I was, I may have been 10, and it, the lightning hit right near us, burned my umbrella. And so I blame everything on that. I have this effect on machines. Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. You're the first person I've met who's been struck by lightning. Fortunately, it didn't strike me directly or I would have died, but but it it, it hit close enough to actually... Did the umbrella, what happened yeah. to your hand on the umbrella? Oh, it was numb for... A while. I, I wish I, I, I wish I could remember it more clearly, but I just remember having having the sensation in my arm and part of my body. I think I don't really remember. That's all for today. Now it's your turn. All you have to do is subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with others so that they can be part of the conversation too. One last thing: a special thanks to Jasmine Joyner, our Psychology of Aging podcast intern, for all you do. Lots of love to you and your families. Bye for now.